0: From the Defense Acquisition University, this is The Learning Circle.
1: This is The Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Dr. Judith Bayliss, Chief Education Advisor here at DAU, the Defense Acquisition University, Dr. Bayless is an award-winning leader in our industry whose career has spanned private industry, higher education, and nonprofit America, representing a diverse set of organizational cultures and learning audiences. Her focus at DAU is on the relationship between learning technologies and training product development, where she's been at the forefront of innovation for our corporate university. Dr. Bayless, welcome. Thank you. Glad to have you with us today.
0: Good to be here.
1: I'd like to discuss the subject of innovation with you. You know, we sometimes get the you know those glossy business magazine articles that make the subject sound a little more romantic than it actually is, or at least imply that it's a one-time event that yields bright and shiny objects. But you have a point of view about innovation that's been formed by the long process of seeing initiatives through from conception to completion and all the hurdles in between, all that stick that's required. And I'd like to draw that out a bit today. So from an institutional perspective, how does innovation begin? Is it an aspiration or a reaction to things that are broken?
0: Well, I think the beginning point could be either or some combination of the two. There's certainly the moments that an individual or a group of people look around and realize that something can be done in a way that is simply more exciting or more modern or offers a value that had simply just not been recognizable before. And I would classify that as kind of that aspirational innovation of that moment of discovering you needed something you never knew you needed before, Right. but there it is in front of you and and the motivation to pursue that. From the other side, and and certainly much more frequently in my experience, I think a lot of it comes from needing to make something better or needing to solve a core problem. Somebody is stuck or there is a customer relationship that needs to improve or there is an entire set of customers who need to be attracted and motivated. And those are the kinds of things where I think innovation comes more out of that problem-solving mentality. There's a known value and in the innovation is focusing or the, the innovative spirit is focusing people's energy and attention on you know, how do we create that value? How do we solve these problems in ways that are truly new and helpful?
1: Excellent. So in sizing up the need, what does the, the process look like when you're evaluating the real need and for telling a legitimate story for why change is needed?
0: Well, I think it really starts with understanding who's affected, who's in pain or dissatisfied or at danger of checking out, who's the customer you're going to lose, or where is something costing the organization money or energy and time that is really just a drag coefficient, doesn't need to be there anymore.
1: Who's got the pebble in their shoe?
0: Who's got the pebble in their shoe? I think it really comes down to living in your professional life in your what you bring to an organization or to a team or to a customer that is truly focused on the values that we hear reflected all over the place of how what is it? that serves a real need a real problem something that is going to make lives better if we solve it one way of phrasing that was a great quote that i heard last week at a conference and one of the uh, the keynotes summed everything up by saying are we giving a gift or a burden and i thought that was a great way to kind of capture the whole notion of innovation we should be giving a gift we should be finding something that is removing a barrier is filling a need. And I think that that gets people's motivation up. I think it gets their creative juices flowing, really knowing that there's something that will be meaningful at some place in the organization or in the environment or in the business process.
1: Isn't that a lot of what, as learning professionals, learning is about fixing what's broken first before you start teaching how to do a process, right? Right.
0: That's what gets to the heart of what's a real problem. We can't be innovative, in my view, around things that aren't real problems. And that's sort of the old eye-rolling canard about training, that training gets applied as the, quote, solution on things that aren't training problems to begin with. And I think if you're taking a problem-centered definition of, of innovation and how you look at what's going on in your world and looking at what should or could be improved, it helps to filter some of that noise out. Because if it's not a real problem, you might have a lot of activity, you might even have some good ideas, but I don't think you're achieving an innovative outcome. How did the world change in a way that is measurable or understood and meaningful? I want to be careful to emphasize that I'm not using the word story as spin. We're not trying to spin anything. Telling the story of what goes on in a particular role, in a particular function, in a particular job, at any level. Truly being able to understand and represent the person or the services that the intended innovation, the reason for looking for a solution set is is going to solve. And I think that that form of communication engages effectively. Part of the story is definitely data. Right. Do you have the proof of the problem? And I think that that deserves to be as data-driven as is necessary. But being able to then articulate what are the impacts? What is the meaning? And then once you're engaged in solving or starting to, to seek solution sets and starting to, to solve the problem, knowing that story for me is the springboard for, you know, what's what are what are our goals here? What's the vision for what the new world will be, if we are able to solve these problems, if we are able to meet our goals. And being able to bring those back into human terms that are connectable, that are human and personable, you can communicate it to leadership, you can communicate it to middle manager, you can communicate it to your ground floor, customer service, first touch with the customer layer of the organization. You know, the fully developed story wraps all of the information together without it being just information. It's the so what. It's the better vision. You know, what's classic mythology? The the hero embarks and the hero has a challenge and then there's some outcome. But why? And why do we tell those things in story format? Because that's the power that motivates us.
1: Similarly, I've been hearing with this new frontier of big data that all this, these gobs of data are wonderful, but you need the right people to tease out the correct story. What does it mean? Right. And you know, you're not going to persuade people with raw numbers. It, it requires the correct story.
0: And I think there's, there's a concern of things that are valuable that are not countable or measurable. And I think that looking at what the story is and Using that story to drive innovative efforts or, or even organizational values of simply having in place that because the organization values innovation, that means that other behaviors will follow. There'll be some amount, hopefully, of budget and time and some tolerance of risk and some tolerance of failure because the stories aren't interesting without that stuff. If the hero never gets in trouble, who cares? That's right. So, you know, holding all of that together, and I think the, the, you know, having that, um, I, I use that phrase of the story or that construct of the story because it reminds us that a lot of times what is important is not in the numbers. Sure. Make sure that where there is data that is on point and valuable and the analytics are in place, definitely get it because you hurt yourself if you don't have that evidence. But it's not to me The totality of the evidence all of the time, and the data can't speak for themselves. People say that, eh, but they don't really. So, what is it that you interpret from that data, and how does that get translated into a reason why? Why should an institution go off and embark on a learning lab? Uh (laughs) Why should an institution go off and, you know, and embark and codify a series of values that might reflect a value on? innovative thinking and uh, willingness potentially to fail before they succeed.
1: Now, knowing this can be a long year-spanning journey, how do you gain and maintain commitment?
0: Well, I think commitment ultimately starts with leadership. and, And that to not overburden the point about storytelling, but is the problem a real problem? Is it a problem that leadership wants to solve? And I truly think that you can have a lot of things going on at the grassroots level you can have a lot of things going on in the middle management level that may lead to great ideas and really critical improvements but if you're going to have what i would call the sustained value of of innovation within an organization and allow people to translate good ideas into pursuit of outcomes that capital C commitment comes from leadership. And if it doesn't flow from the top down, you may have dedication in employees and, and in certain parts of the workforce, but you probably don't have institutional commitment. So for me, part of that is, or the big differentiator is, is it a problem that leadership wants to own? Is it a problem that leadership sees as critical to the organization in some way to solve? And understanding that it might not be one round of problem solving, and then everything's better again. I think that here at DAU, we've been particularly fortunate that we've had a persistent leadership on solving long-term problems. Even through changes of leadership and changes of personnel, that the ability to apply the standard stuff, you know, time and money and human energy... And to trying things and finding out, are they going to work well for us or are they not going to work well for us? And picking back up and trying again. The balance to me, but you know, there's, are you committed to solving the problem is probably a more powerful way to state that than simply saying, are you committed to innovation? Because that's the part that sounds great when you pick Uh up one of the glossy magazines, Organization X, Y, Z is in, you know, Fortune 100 this year because they're committed to innovation. Okay, what does that mean? Yeah, Where is this uh, story?
1: One sounds like an abstraction yes. and one sounds like a commitment to fixing something specific.
0: Yes, providing something meaningful. We can, I mean, to me, we can talk about innovation and say, you know, is that a personality trait? That's like saying Judith is talkative. Okay, so what? So, you've described Judith as talkative.
1: I didn't it, say you were talking, just for I'm, the record. Yeah.
0: Um, but what does that translate into? What does that gain anyone? It, that's not something, does that need to change or not need to change? You know, you can ask my friends and family that question. But when we're talking about innovation, to me, we're not providing an adjective, we're not providing a descriptor, we're not providing a personality trait or an organizational trait. We're talking about work. We're talking about things that get done or don't get done.
1: Yeah, these reduce to requirements and tasks and job roles, right? It's very, very concrete. It's not pie in the sky.
0: Right. Things that organizational leadership and management can know. Yeah. Where did time go? Where did money go? What did we get for it? Is the problem still there or is the new need, if we're on more of that aspirational journey of innovation is the new need being fulfilled yet. Right. And and those are very knowable things.
1: So embarking on this journey, how do you get the right people on the bus? I mean, stakeholders, the people who are going to define the requirements accurately, and all the talent required.
0: Mm, the people who care. I would say in my experience, people are not hard to get on the bus. Most people, when there's an opportunity to alleviate pain, will take it. I would say that once you know. What the problem is well enough, or you've identified a need well enough to begin addressing it. It's just following those natural connections. Who am I serving? Do I have someone who can represent the individuals, the cohort being served? Is that voice here? Who owns the constraint and the challenges around me? Who owns the consequences of addressing a need or a problem? Because they're never in isolation. And I would think at least the first order owners of those consequences often need to be on the bus. You're solving a need, but you may be changing someone else's world. You will be changing someone else's world and how they live their lives. That's got to be accounted for. It doesn't necessarily mean every single one of those people deserves a place on the bus, but... The representative of that, you know, years ago I threw out the phrase, the comment, the, the idle chit chat in a in a conference symposium hallway one time, but between all the sessions of, you know, sometimes I think we are all here to be the Lorax. Mm. You know, the trees aren't here, but somebody's got to speak for them. And, and there seems to be parallels of that in the training and development world. We're all supposed to be here for the learner, however we define that. Or we're here for, you know, some, because we represent professionally the needs and wants of some set of customers. So I think, you know, it may be okay. It may be enough to have the Lorax on the bus. You, you, you may not need right. 50 different <laughs> stakeholders if you've got the Lorax. But I think the core of that is you, you've got to have the people who want to own the problem. You've got to have representatives from the stakeholders who either represent constraints that may not be changeable, or have some ability to be part of manipulating those constraints in a new way. Mm-hmm. You know, using the bus metaphor, you know, I think leadership needs to bless the bus. I think you, that that's the The bottom line of commitment is that leadership has said, yes, the bus can go and these people can get on it. But whether or not in that model there, you know, do they need to be embedded in the work? That might be organizational dependent. You know, how complex is the organization? How big does it like to work flat or does it have a lot of silos? Um, But if you don't have the people who can make a change, technically proficient, professionally proficient, and you don't have the people who live with the problem, who will be served, and you don't have the people who can address and hopefully manipulate some constraints, you probably can't get going.
1: In the early part of that answer, it sounded like you need some champions to reinforce the value proposition along the way, right? Because the going's going to get tough at some point. And you've got to have cheerleaders who matter as a part of your team.
0: Right. And I, you know, I would think, oh man, we're switching metaphors again. Um, I, I, I think, you know, it's the, (laughs) you know,
1: this bus must be going to a homecoming. uh, homecoming.
0: It's, I think you can have a lot of cheerleaders, but you know, they don't get on the bus with the players. That's where having a defined set of goals and a common understanding of vision, it becomes the forming factors around that team. Mm -hmm. And you can have, cheerleaders are great and they're necessary. And they're certainly awesome communicators. And they help morale, but the people in the game are the ones who count. So who's suited up? It's making sure that those individuals are represented and those individuals are able to engage what's the strategy, what's the game plan, what are... Um, what are the actual actions that are going yeah. to take place? You know, in, in, in the DAU situation, we were looking for a content authoring tool that would help us alleviate a number of constraints or at least you know significantly reduce them if they couldn't be entirely alleviated. And so there are a lot of people who are completely committed to cheering that on, but they really couldn't, to follow the sports metaphor, play the game because that was not their role. If you're not the courseware developer, if you're not the designer, if you're not the learner, if you're not the instructor, there are positions on the team. It doesn't minimize that you need some cheerleaders from time to time. But to me, it comes back to that core team knowing why it's important to win.
1: Yes. They may not be the practitioners that are deep domain experts, but they need to understand the proposition and its importance. Right. Right. Tell me a little bit more about that. So you've, we've talked about innovation, but to kind of bring it into a real world example, you mentioned the content authoring. Can you give us a quick sketch of what that looked like for DAU in our pursuit yeah. of that particular, you know, vision and outcome?
0: Yeah, the epochal search. It was <laughs> the years long search, you know, and and I think that's, so the history there is that 11 years ago, DAU started formally seeking a way to address a number of challenges in the course development process for our online learning. And it ranged from everything from things being delivered that were crafted in different tools, and they made it difficult to share materials and share programming between courses. We ended up having to rebuild things that we already had because something was built in tool A and it won't work in tool B. Knowing where all of our source files were and what file types they were and how we held on to them and whether or not they could even help us when it was time to change a course. Those were very real business problems. You know, every time a course development team came on board, if they're using something different from what a prior team did, just the acclamation to that, and their need to acclimate to how we operate as a customer. It added so much overhead there. So you know, all of those things were really identified, as I said, years and years ago, 2005. And do you approached the market, we did all of the things that you would consider to be quote the right things to do. We engaged with the smart consultants, we did the market research, we brought, and ultimately we brought a tool in-house, and it failed. It failed for a number of reasons, not insignificantly, that it didn't really truly solve the problem. So it deserved to fail.
1: <laughs> Do you think it, um, things went off the rails at requirement gathering, or have you been able to autopsy that?
0: That's a really old autopsy. From memory, um, and to put that in context, my second week on the job here was getting trained in that tool. Spent that week in the first training session of, of what this great Panacea for course development was supposed to bring us and looking back on it I really think that the requirements were, were fine but
1: problems
0: were very real the technology available at the time could not adequately solve the problem
1: this is still pretty early and this is in, still pretty the, early you know in the and so, browser revolution that right, allowed this right. e-learning and, period
0: and I think what had happened was that, to a great degree, DAU as an organization was able to express needs as requirements that were just a little bit ahead of what the commercial marketplace was delivering at that time, at least in a stable, sustainable product that an outfit as fiscally conservative as a government agency was going to go by. And it didn't pan out, not for lack of trying. And and I don't think it was for lack of understanding the problem or, or discipline in how we went about trying to solve that problem. Um, so we went from that to, okay, well, if it's not out there yet, can we build it? And that failed too. Now, it failed pretty quickly. It failed in a lab environment. And I think that was critical for that particular approach that if you're trying to create something, do you have organizationally a space in which failure is safe and contained? And again, that was trying to meet the same needs and solve the same problems. And, and I think that's really what gets to the longevity of commitment. That's why, you know, I started out earlier saying that, you know, commitment comes from is the problem a real problem? And is it still there? And it was still there. And eventually, about four years ago, on the third run at, okay, you know, where do we go next? We had waited out the market, and we went back to the commercial market. And the technology readiness of that particular segment of the learning technologies industry was now addressing what our problems were that hadn't really changed all along. And so, you know, that was, again, now now we're at success. But I think having that clear-eyed view of why solving the problem was important, and then at least in round two, living through a necessary failure, that informed the stakeholders, that informed the people affected by the problem, that informed leadership. And we knew we weren't off track, so the variable's got to be somewhere
1: else. Right. This is like the fabled Edison's light bulb. You know, they weren't just broken things. He said, I've learned all the ways not to make a light bulb.
0: Right, right.
1: And it's interesting that the story didn't end with a failed project. And this ties back to commitment. So I think that would be the difference, right? Is the project may have failed, but we still had our eyes on a prize that was born of a recognition that there is a problem. There is a better future state.
0: But the future state is imaginable. And the benefit of that future state is imaginable in near time terms. I'm not waiting ten years. Yes. You know, it it might be two or three, but it's not an entire decade of software development life span. That's that would be unimaginable. I can't imagine unimaginable
1: because the whole um, paradigm might shift. Might shift
0: again. Um, But I think that's what goes back to commitment. And it's not just saying, okay, you know, there's some sort of psychological approval from leadership to, to go out and okay, go solve this problem if you feel like it. But going back to that definition of commitment, it was represented in the organization's strategic goals, which meant it became represented in budget and it became represented in formally officially, these people spend time and represent that in the time reporting system, doing whatever's necessary to tackle this problem. Commitment is not, it's not lip service.
1: Right. How do you measure the success? How do you know when you're achieving it or, or that you have achieved it?
0: Well, is your problem going away?
1: Yeah, it's an obvious question. It's an, but, you
0: know, but, but, you know, I think the... Um,
1: but sometimes, you know, but part of that is the... ROI and things like that, right?
0: You know, is the problem going away? You know, everybody's looking for that all along. I, I would, I think that the the extended answer is, what else is changing? Have you have you given a gift? Have you alleviated a burden instead of imposing a new one? And what are the second and third order consequences? and change effects that are going on around the innovative outcome that was being sought to begin with. You know, in, in, in the DAU example, we can point to business procedures and related systems that because we now have solved the first order problem, we can actually grow and, and evolve some of those procedures and some of those systems to get data that we could not even have gathered before. And so we can start looking at, you know, where are our affordances now? Where are there things that we did in the past because they controlled a risk that may not even exist now that my problem is solved? So do I get back something? Can I give up having to spend time and money on other activities because my innovative solution has reduced the risk involved in The compliance of my training product to some corporate standard or the number of times that a subject matter expert has to come in and review some phase of the work to ensure that we're still accurate and we're, we still have fidelity to what the learner needs outside, you know, the, the crucible of the development laboratory where things are getting put together. And I think when you can start saying, Hey, not only do I solve my problem, but I don't even have to do these two or three other things anymore because that risk no longer exists, then you can put a big smiley face on yeah, success. Yeah, those are
1: dividends yes. on top of the yes. problem being solved. Right. Very good. Is innovation a culture? Is innovation We're going back illegal. to the, the early part you, of the discussion You, you about asked leadership. me these
0: questions knowing that my inner child is an anthropologist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to stop and think about that one. I think innovation is a value. And I'll out myself as a behaviorist as well. I think that like everything else in a culture, if it is a component of that culture, it is exhibited through behaviors. And so when you have individuals who will raise their hand and say, let me test something. When you have individuals who will walk in your door and say, I've been thinking about fill in the blank. And here's my idea. And here's what I want to get done or want to see if we can do. Those are the kinds of behaviors that start to tell me that there is a culture that at best is not preventing innovation. And if those are also indicators of a certain amount of trust, trust in the organization to respond, uh, trust between individuals to want to engage in meaningful change, directional change, following up on the right ideas, and having the trust to say, you know, we all have ideas, not all of them are good. Having the trust to say, I understand from your perspective and the role you fill, why it looks like bringing in a particular tool is going to make the whole world a better place. But what you don't know is... And then they begin to provide other perspectives on where all those connections in the nexus are, where all the ripple effects are. There's no constraint-free process, right? So you may have an individual who, for whatever reason, is the lucky soul who's having to put up with constraints in his or her work and his or her technology and in, in his or her outcomes because they're the ones who are the stuckies for having those constraints in that particular area ensure that worse constraints are freed up from other parts of the process or other ways in which the organization serves the customers and so i think it's it's having that trust where all the you know everybody else can go yeah we understand why from your view you want a better world you're breaking you would potentially break something else that you're not aware of and and those those are those are trust exchanges Yes. Um and so when I see that kind of stuff going on I'm like all right this is this is a culture in which innovation won't be thwarted.
1: There's a dialogue. There's
0: a dialogue. You know and I think I think you can have the desire for something I think you can value something, you know, uh, organizations got on their, all their, you know, here's the values of company A or company, you know, why all that stuff that started coming out in the nineties. Oh, great. You know, Coca-Cola no longer values apartheid in South Africa. That might be too political for the podcast. Um, (laughs) but you, you know, great, wonderful, you know, make us feel good as consumers and not like we're giving our money to jerks, but you can have that expression of value and still not necessarily have budget. Mm-hmm. Still not necessarily have people whose time you can afford to put into that effort. Um, so when it, when you ask the question about culture, um, sure. But I tend to, you know, culture can stop you. Culture can, to some degree, enable you. But it doesn't do it alone. Culture can enable you, great. But if I don't have budget, all the behaviors aren't there.
1: There's a lot of rubber meets the road factors.
0: Right. Right. And whatever it is, it may not always be money. Is it just time? You know, is this something that I need to find 90 minutes a day, but there's, there's no way that is ever going to happen. Yes. Yeah.
1: So what I take from all this is that innovation may not always be romantic, but it can be very rewarding.
0: Yeah. You know, solving a problem
1: and especially after three tries (laughs) in that example you gave us. Do you have any other advice today for folks that are staring this down about to climb a mountain
0: yeah you know i think it boils down to you know it's a marathon it's not a sprint you know do you want to run the marathon can you run the marathon and there's i think there's just a certain amount of don't you can't be afraid of it if you're going to solve the problem grit your teeth and carry on Keep your chocolate bowl full. If you have to sell out the Starbucks coffee pot every day, you know. But but it is that it's work, and and it's putting your hand to the work, and it's keeping it going.
1: There's a know. big sustainment tail right. to all of it,
0: right? You know, and I think back to things like school in the cloud and some of the other big ideas that have been truly wonderful uh, innovations in the learning space, you know, at a planetary level for that one. And you look at that story and you think, okay, what could be more fascinating than using technology to change the lives of very disenfranchised children in very poor parts of the world. And you see that, part. oh, look, the, the The computer came to this particular neighborhood, which is one of the poorest neighborhoods in India, and look what happened for these people. And we, that is romantic, and it's moving, and it's valuable, and, and you feel good that there are human beings out there who can make this stuff happen. Um, but the part of the story you don't get When you hear the TED Talk acclaim, that was work.
1: It was. You know,
0: somebody went and did that. Somebody took a risk and they stayed with it. And they're willing to keep doing the work. It wasn't just an idea, it was an idea that happened because somebody, sets of somebody's.
1: Right. It's like the old thing about someone being called an overnight success and then they correct you. No, that was um, 15 years of playing dives and, and all of that.
0: Right, right. Yeah. You know, just, oh, now you're famous as though at that moment, that's when everything
1: Right. We tend to just see the outcome. We don't see what went into it. It's not the romantic part of it that we necessarily want to know about either. So it can really truncate our view of innovation and all, all that it entails.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think if you're expecting to wake up with the big idea and sort of have it happen in the way it gets portrayed in press or, you know, in the way we talk about it after the fact, you're not going to be prepared for the work.
1: Excellent. Dr. Bayless, thank you very much. This has been a great discussion. Can I have you you back again sometime? Yeah,
0: well, yeah, because you can get to my calendar, so that's probably going to happen.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Thank you again.
0: Thank
1: you. Thank you. All right.
0: Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.